You're listening to The Peak Podcast with me, Christina Roman. We're having real, intimate conversations about the interconnectedness of life. Join us as we discuss big topics like intuition, personal mastery, and emotional wellness and why they matter for you. In this episode, I'm chatting with a former classmate, Nate Andorsky, about behavioral economics. We jump really fast into the episode, so I wanted to rewind and give you a bit of background on what behavioral econ really is. It studies the effect of psychological, cognitive, emotional, cultural, and social factors on the economic decisions of individuals. And so where classic econ says that humans are very rational, behavioral economics says, no, we're not actually rational, but here's what we can do about it. I've been interested in behavioral economics for a really long time, but now that I'm a life coach, I'm even more fascinated by a lot of the concepts as they apply to changing your life and changing your habits. You'll hear me quote this from Nate's company's website in the episode, but on the website, it says 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings happen before we are consciously aware of them. However, much of today's technology is built based on the other 5%. I think this is super interesting, absolutely applies to coaching, where we're making so many subconscious or unconscious decisions, and coaching is really about bringing all of those decisions out into the light, as I like to say, so that we can actually make more connected, aligned decisions for our lives. So we talk about so many theories and concepts that apply to both behavioral econ and coaching. So if you want a study guide of sorts, you can head to my website, peakcoaching.co slash 19. And that's going to be your place to dig into all of the resources and concepts that we mention, especially if you're a visual person. So enjoy the resources, enjoy the episode, and I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Hey, Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. You're one of my first recordings in person. So we're just chilling on my couch right now. Dreary little DC day. Right. It's great, right? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So basically what I just made you do is stop telling me the really, really interesting story that you were telling me so that we could hit record and actually have you tell it on the podcast. So you were telling me all about a few different behavioral economic phrases. So we're just going to get right into behavioral economics. And you were telling me about, we were talking about risk aversion. Yeah. I was telling you that I think I'm actually really risk tolerant and that I see risk as a spectrum of risk averse to risk tolerant. So you were telling me that entrepreneurs, though people think that they're risk tolerant, are actually not. So I would say yes and no. I think that on the surface, a lot of what entrepreneurs do looks to be very risky. And, and not to say, I mean, this isn't a blanket statement, so not to say that there aren't entrepreneurs or there aren't a lot of entrepreneurs that are very, very risk tolerant. But I think sometimes if you actually really peel back the way entrepreneurs go about making decisions, they're not as risky as they may seem. And it, the, one of the reasons that this occurred to me is there's an interesting article by a professor down at UVA that came out probably about 10 years ago. And her name is Sarah Saravathy, I believe was her name. And she came up with this sort of concepts of what's called effectual entrepreneurship and the way that entrepreneurs approach problems. And the parallel that she drew to this was basically the difference where, where an entrepreneur approaches a problem is different than somebody from corporate America. And the analogy that she gave was, imagine that you're a chef in the kitchen. And if you're an entrepreneur, the way that you go about problem solving, building companies is as if somebody gave you a bunch of ingredients and they say, okay, now make something. Corporate America, they give you what you should make. And then you sort of backfill and figure out how to get there. 
But the whole concept is basically that as an entrepreneur, the future is unpredictable, right? So if I'm trying to set a stake in the ground and saying this is what it's going to happen in five years and then trying to build towards that, if the future is un unpredictable, that's sort of a flawed model, right? So what entrepreneurs typically do is they will build a little bit with the resources that they have, and then they'll see where they are, and then they'll take the next step. And actually, if you approach a problem from this frame of reference and this approach, you're actually reducing the risk that is involved because you're not planning everything up front. Rather, you're saying, let me see how things play out and build this piece by piece. So we were talking about your, your approach to uh, coaching, how you quit your job full time, right? And you weren't coaching all in. And I think that on the surface, that looks very risky. But if you sort of peel back the layers and you kind of say, okay, listen, I'm going to do coaching full time. I don't know what your financial position was, but you, there was a way for you to make this work, right? You weren't just saying, oh, I have to, I have a personal burn rate of $5,000 and absolutely no income. And I'm still going to quit my job and just do coaching full time. I have no idea how I'm going to live. That's very risky, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and so, well, this conversation about entrepreneurship does not come out of left field. So let me now take the time to back up a little bit. So uh, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Just want to like throw you into the deep end right away. So we actually met in an entrepreneurship class about a decade ago. Yes. A long time. Um, and so it's all kind of coming full circle. So we had an awesome professor. And I think I credit him a lot for setting me on a path of entrepreneurship or absolutely contributing to that path. And so I know you and I were like working on class projects. And so tell me just a quick summary of how your entrepreneurship journey has gone in the past 10 years. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I've been fired slash laid off from three jobs, uh, which was sort of the <laughs> indication that maybe I'm not cut out for the corporate world. And it's interesting because there's a lot of conversation around whether entrepreneurship is nature versus nurture. I have had it. I, I, I believe that I was born with it. I think as, as early as I can remember, even all the way back to high school, I always was working on starting companies, businesses, even in college, even after college when I still had a full-time job. And that was the formal education of being in college and taking entrepreneurship classes was was good, but a lot of my really knowledge came from hands-on work, and it's just something that I've always been interested in in one capacity or another since I can really remember. I feel the exact same way. I mean, I just have always been dabbling in all these different projects. It was actually interesting. One of my friends said to me, she was like, hey, I just wanted to apologize for the way that I saw your side projects back in college. She's like, I saw them as this these little, like, Christina's little side hobbies. She's like, I was so embedded in the world of finance and accounting that I didn't see that there was actual real potential to make those into thriving businesses. I thought that was really nice of her to acknowledge. Acknowledge that. That's, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the real reason you're here, though, is to talk in depth about behavioral economics and really about the overlap between behavioral economics and coaching. And I am I still am pinching myself that I get to just record this podcast episode as part of my job. Like, I have been so excited about this episode. And I've been reading all of the resources that you've sent me, which are awesome. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to put them all in the show notes. And I just want to dive in. Sure. So I told you that I do an exercise with clients called the future self, which is basically putting yourself into the shoes of your future self in order to help you make decisions about your life now. And you brought up some really interesting behavioral economics perspectives on that idea. So can you tell me your take on that exercise? 
Yeah. So I, I think where do where, where do I begin? I think that uh, I mean, first of all, behavioral economics really fascinates me, and and the the deeper that I've gotten into it, the more I start to realize how little of our decisions we're really truly in control of. And I think it's really fascinating once you really understand what drives human behavior, you can really start to build models and systems to help you meet your future self. So there's a lot that goes into this sort of concept of future self. But one of the the big theories is this idea of present bias and that we tend to overweight our present situation uh, versus the future. So one of the concepts basically is that as our decisions move into the future, that the the weight of them actually gets discounted. Um, so whether it's a loss or a gain, we actually discount that. But there's also research in psychology that talks a little bit about this idea of future self, where when you think about yourself now, you think about yourself in first person, but as you move into the future, you think of yourself as a third person. So there is research to actually suggest that that third person mentality or viewing that person as a completely separate person as yourself, as if it's a stranger on the street. So if something happens to that stranger on the street, it's basically inconsequential to you because you don't perceive it as happening to you, which is one of the reasons, and there's a myriad of reasons that go into this, but one of the reasons that we fail to meet our future self because we don't always view the consequences of our actions happening to us specifically. Okay. I have so many, so many thoughts about this whole thing. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, <laughs> yes. This is one of the most interesting Parts. I'm going to say that about all parts of behavioral econ, just a heads up. But I was doing this exercise actually with a client yesterday, and we did a, a long venture into what would your future self say about these 20 decisions that are on your plate right now. And the amount of clarity that she got was – it almost shocks me. Every time I do this exercise, the amount of clarity that people have about their current situation when they talk to their future self is – crazy. Yeah. I mean, mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And so I think now that I've talked to you, I think about that exercise slightly differently. And I think about, okay, well, that amount of clarity is great, but how do you actually act on that clarity today? Right. So I think there's two parts to unpack there. The first one is when you're asking your clients to, you're basically, and just to clarify here, you're asking your clients for their future self to talk to their current self. Yes. <laughs> right. So a lot of that is very tangible because you're talking about your current situation, mm, right? And yes. unpacking that. So it's very, it's not abstract. It's very concrete, right? Yes. But then the concept and the idea becomes, okay, this is where I want to be in five years. How do I get to that place? That's where that gap starts to happen, right? And you see a lot of this talks and sort of lends itself to anything around improving ourselves around behavior change. So you see this in the finance space, wanting to save more money. You see this in the health space, wanting to eat better. And how do you meet your future self is the big question there. And one of the things that we work with in behavioral economics is the first thing that we do is we identify what we what we call the, the symptoms, right? So the symptoms are the types of things that I'm thinking and feeling. And then we pull that back and say, okay, what are the drivers? What are the behavioral drivers that are contributing to that? So those are some of the things that we just talked about. And then the next step would basically going in and saying, okay, what are some of the solutions to help us override those drivers? So in this case, you see a lot of commitment devices to help offset that 
Okay, I'm going to pause you right there. Yes. You said so many words yes. that are all wonderful, but I want to really make sure that I'm diving in fully. Sure. Because I know some people listening are probably like, okay, what does that mean? Let's take it to a case study, if you would, before we even get into commitment devices. Does that mm-hmm. work? Yes. Good with that? Okay. So let's go back. You talked about um, behavior drivers Mm -hmm. and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So you and I have talked about a few different areas that I work with clients on. So creativity is one of them, uh, health and wellness, and this idea of focus and concentration and deep work. Right. So the example of the deep work is I might have a client that comes to me and is like, I... They probably don't say I'm addicted to my phone, but that's the subtext, right? They say, I can't focus. I can't concentrate. I'm not doing the things that I want to do in my life. And if we pick that apart, we basically find out that's because you're spending so much time and energy on things that are not actually putting you closer to your future self. Right. So in that specific scenario, there's, there's the symptoms, which are the things that they're describing, right? And... So there's actually a really interesting book that just came out called Indistractable that sort of talks about this whole scenario of people saying that they're quote unquote addicted to their phone. And the whole thesis of the book is basically saying that it's not really the phone that they're addicted to. There's something bigger going on here and they're using the phone as a crutch. Yes, totally agree. So the first thing there is sort of identifying, okay, where do they want to be, right? And getting clarity on where their future self wants to be. But one of the things is, well, how do you close that gap in the meantime, right? So one of their, can you give me like a specific goal of something that somebody might want to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's say somebody wants to write a book. Okay. And just a tiny bit more detail. So basically they want to write a book and they're like, I don't have time. Perfect. Classic example. Right. Classic example. So <laughs> with writing a book, um, that is a very long-term goal, right? So one of the things that we'd want to do is first break that up into very not very small goals that are easy to conquer in a very short period of time. And it's actually interesting because I'm in the process of writing a book right now. So I'm going actually through this. This is good promotion for you. <laughs> exactly. And you already have a title. I, I do. I are, do. Are you allowed to say it? Uh, I, I am. It's called uh, Nudging for Good. So, awesome. And um, the first thing you'd want to do, there's a number of mechanisms that can help them achieve their future self. So the first thing is breaking up these goals into very, very small tasks, things that you can do in the next week. Okay, writing a book is a very big challenge. It's very far in the future. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. Can you write, can you just write a thousand words by next week? Okay, that's within the next week. I can see that happening. I can see my future self doing that. And it's a tangible, concrete goal. Um, The other things that we also see is social norm theory is a very, very big driver of behavior. So what others are doing around you. So building in a cohort, for example, of other authors, but I'm not talking authors that are very, very far removed from where you are. One of the things that we see is that a lot of individuals tend to um, adjust to whatever the mean is of the group, right? So if you put me in a cohort with other authors that are either at my level or just a little bit farther from where I currently am, it helps me see my future self in those individuals and then strive to get there. Uh, There's also a lot around other things which we can dig in deeper to, goal gradient theory, pseudo set framing, chunking, and a few other things around there too. I just, we need like a whole dictionary, right. just a glossary of <laughs> I know, all the phrases. Words here. I love it so much though, because I think it's actually really helpful when you put words or you put a name to a theory. Uh-huh. I know that that helps me in my life as I say, oh, 
this what's happening right now is opportunity cost. What's happening right now is sunk cost. What's mm-hmm. happening right now is exactly full gradient theory. <laughs> exactly. And so then I go, okay, this isn't just me. I'm not unique and special. This is an actual behavioral economics theory that's uh, that I'm just seeing shake out in my right, life. Right. And a lot of what we do is driven by the hurt effect and social norm theory. And basically what social norm theory talks about and the hurt effect is that we tend to follow the herd, right? So we tend to adhere to what others are doing. And this can be a really, really powerful force in getting us to complete certain tasks. And one really interesting example of this, and you see this a lot in the health and finance space, specifically in the health space, is when you're trying to get somebody to change a behavior, they'll put you into cohorts, right? Groups of people. And the whole idea here is that you will start to be able to imagine your future self with the other people that are in the group, but also compete against them. And we're by nature very competitive. And this is actually really interesting because one of the things that you could do with book writing specifically is you could split people up into cohorts, right? Small cohorts. And the idea here is you would want to put them with other people that are somewhat at their their level, right? Because one of the ways that this can actually backfire, and you see this sometimes in leaderboards, is that if a specific person gets too far ahead of the group or too far behind, you tend to give up. Because the whole idea is, well, I'm so far behind or I'm so far ahead that I don't need to put in as much effort anymore. And this parlays into something called goal gradient theory, which is the concept that the closer we are to a goal, the more likely we are to work hard to achieve that goal. And I was doing research around this and I was trying to figure out, okay, well, if you have a cohort and there are specific people that are moving really far ahead, how do you counter this? There is actually a lot of fascinating research in game design around these types of behavioral mechanisms. So have you ever played Mario Kart by chance? No, I told you this. I don't play video games and you mocked me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too busy reading books about, you know, technology addiction to actually play with technology. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. So Mario Kart's a very popular Nintendo game that a lot of uh, kids played growing up. I've heard of it. I've heard okay. of it. So it's basically a <laughs> racing game. Yeah, and yeah. this paradigm is built into a lot of game designs. And basically what happens is you're going around this track and you're competing with other people, you're racing against them, and you get certain pieces. Uh, you can get like mushrooms and, and rockets and such. And basically the idea is that It's not just a race, but you can fire these items at your opponents and throw them off the track. So you could be in first place, you could be in second place, but you can get ahead or behind depending on what you're awarded. What's really interesting about the game, though, is I grew up playing the game with my cousins and my siblings. And I would always notice that if you were in last place, there was always this idea that you could easily get to first place. You could get some sort of rocket that you could shoot at somebody before you know you're in first place. And I started looking into this, and it's actually intentionally built into game design. It's something called rubber banding. And the basic concept is, is that if you're far behind the pack, you're, you get awards to easily catch up to everybody else. But what this does is it increases user engagement because whether you realize it consciously or not, you're never out of the race. And this same sort of concept can be brought to cohorts or social norm or heart effect is putting mechanisms into these groups where even if somebody is falling behind, they can easily catch up to the rest of the group so they never feel like they're actually out of the pack. 
Okay, so the reason that one of the big reasons that we're talking so much about cohorts is because of this idea of group coaching. And it's something that I used to not be interested in at all for multiple reasons. I think it's a superiority complex. I was like, they can't help me with my very special, unique problems. And I don't want to waste time watching other people get coached when I could just be focusing on myself. All very selfish. And um, I've completely switched my mindset on group coaching. Now I see so much value. Uh, in watching other people get coached. And I say a big reason for that is that you can often see in other people what you can't yet see in yourself. And so I mention all of that because I think that this idea of cohorts and rubber banding ties so much into group coaching. So as a coach who is facilitating group coaching programs, how could I use rubber banding? So one of the ways that you could use it is during group coaching, if there is a, are there specific tasks people are supposed to do, or is there a program they're actually moving through? Yeah, so worksheets would be the common denominator. Okay, so is I mean, if there's, is there a mechanism for somebody to either feel like they're 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 falling behind or not falling behind? That's a great question. I think it depends on the theme. So if you have a very broad theme where people are just choosing their own goal and working towards it, then it probably wouldn't be as much of an issue. But if you do have a common theme where let's say the common theme is everyone's going to do a deep work habit, which means right. more time without technology to, in order to focus more clearly. Right. So one of the ways that you could accomplish this is building into the group pro- coaching program is some sort of badging and reward system. And these don't have to actually be tangible rewards. We see that users tend to respond to arbitrary rewards, virtual rewards very well, right? So for hitting certain bench benchmarks and milestones, maybe you get a badge, you get a certain level, just very similar to game design. Um, if you fail to meet those, there could be some mechanism, even if it's not explicitly stated, to still gain a badge, right? So if everybody in the group has a badge or two badges or three badges and you have zero, you're so far behind, you might think of giving up, but there could be a mechanism for you to easily get a badge or two badges to sort of catch up to where everybody is. It's a little extra credit. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. And then I don't want to segue too far away from this topic of the cohorts, but we did talk about the idea of extra credit Mm -hmm. and that mechanism. Can you talk about that? Sure. So there's this idea of loss aversion, and we tend to weigh losses twice as much as the an equal gain. So psychologically, so if you found $20 on the street, and then you lost that $20 psychologically, that would feel like a $40 loss to you. So reframing games in terms of losses can actually have a really big impact. And one of the examples that I gave you was so imagine that you're a professor and you're teaching your students and a lot of professors will offer extra credit. So if you do certain tasks, you can gain extra credit. You could run the same program, but just simply change the way that you offer this and you could get more kids to complete extra credit. And the way that you could do this is you would give them the extra credit at the beginning of the semester and then it was theirs to lose if they didn't complete the extra credit. So the same sort of concept is you could grant somebody a reward or a badge or some sort of mechanism. And then if they don't complete certain tasks, they lose it. Okay, so that makes total sense. And I think is going to help me improve my group coaching programs. Let's say someone doesn't want to join my program. I don't know why you wouldn't want to, but that's fine. Um, How can they apply this one on one in their own life? Specifically the rubber banding. Um, or that and the risk and the loss the aversion. loss aversion. So one of the ways is if you're looking to incorporate some of these theories specifically for you in your 
in your life is you could make your own sort of commitments. So commitment devices are a really great way to offset this present bias that we have, right? So uh, making commitments even to other people, right? So if I don't achieve X, and this shouldn't be really far off in the future, it should be very concrete and in the near future. So if I don't write a thousand words by next week, for example, then I have to you know, give $100 to a person or a charity, for example. Or if you want to use the loss aversion is you give the $100 at the beginning of the week and you don't get it back unless you, you achieve certain goals. So as your group coach facilitator, you're all going to pay me. Hope that I don't run off with all your money and then get it back if you actually do the work. It's actually <laughs> interesting because there was uh, I was talking to an individual yesterday and he has an event that he runs and one of the big issues he always had was people showing up, even if he asked people to pay for it. And he flipped it on its head and basically you would pay $5 to attend the event and if you attended the event, you got your money back. And if you didn't, you wouldn't. So using that whole sort of commitment devices and also loss aversion but in a more effective way, understanding that we overvalue losses versus gains. Interesting. Okay. So I have this question for you about commitment devices. So I know a fair amount about them because I've just been reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. Really good book. Mm -hmm. You haven't read it, right? I haven't read it yet. It's on my list though. Highly recommend. Um, But one thing that occurs to me is that commitment devices are very contingent on external Things so they're they're contingent on people's approval. They're contingent on money, on those kinds of things. And one thing that really intrigues me about coaching is this idea that if you get your mind right, then the feelings come and then the actions come. And so you might not actually need those external things in order to achieve your goals. Thoughts? Yes. So that's actually an excellent question and something that I've wrestled with and thought about. My opinion on this is that commitment devices are. So the idea is that you should be doing because you get some type of internal reward feedback from it that you just enjoy, right? So I learn a lot about behavioral economics, not because I've created a thousand commitment devices to get me to do it, just because I enjoy doing it, right? right? And that's the most powerful, powerful way to do it. But it takes time to, to get momentum and to set things in motion. So the way that I look at it is commitment devices can help bridge that gap until you're at that point. Right. And I think a lot of working out, for example, right, there gets a point where it becomes such a habit. And I do it now, too, as I work out because I feel good afterwards. And that's the best way to keep that that habit going. But to even get to that point, that's where commitment devices can be really helpful to get you to that point. That's a really good point. There's actually not to keep quoting James Clear, but there's a quote from his book that's basically like um, habits or external things create habits, identity keeps your habit going. And so he's basically talks about if you have an identity conflict with the thing that you want to achieve, then you're naturally going to not sustain that habit because there's going to be this whole conflict in your mind, even if it's subconscious. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of subconscious, I actually pulled a quote from your website that I thought was really, no, no problem. I (laughs) actually was going to joke with you that I was going to steal your tagline. Okay, go for um, it. <laughs> but I think it's really this to me is the overlap between behavioral economics and coaching, which is you say 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings happen before we are consciously aware of them. However, much of today's technology is built based on the other 5%. And I just thought that was really interesting is that that level of 
unawareness that we have about all these things that are happening in our life. And so I think part of it is that behavioral economics and coaching are both focused around how do we unearth all these things that are happening subconsciously. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And well, because I also wrote that. um, And there's also an argument to to be made that when you build technology, a lot of the ways that you go about doing it is you do surveys, you do focus groups, you ask users, what do they want? What do they need in your piece of technology? Whether that's a mobile app or a website, they tell you and then you build it and you find out they're not using it and you can't figure out why. And it's not that they're lying to you. It's just that we don't consciously often are aware of everything that's really driving our decision making. So it's really figuring out what are the things that we're not aware of that are actually influencing the way that we decide. And we also tend to, this is actually a really interesting concept too, is that we make decisions emotionally, subconsciously, and then we post-rationalize. So we're not even consciously aware of the decisions that we're necessarily making. And then afterwards, we create this narrative to fit the story that we that we did. Um which drives home that point even more so is that when we tell somebody why we did something, it's a post-rationalization of why we did it. Fascinating. Do you have a specific example of that? Well, I'm perfect, so I've never done this. Of course, but, of course. <laughs> um, you know, for example, oh, this is a perfect, perfect example is you walk into a store and you're looking to buy a bottle of wine and you go into the store and you look at the different options and you buy a $35 price bottle of wine and you walk out and you ask somebody why they bought that bottle of wine. They said that the label was nice and I wanted a red wine and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be part of the story, but actually what was going on is you walked into the store and there was a $35 bottle of wine. And then next to it, there was a $90 bottle of wine. And then to the left of it, there was a $5 bottle of wine. And the $5 bottle of wine was really cheap. The 90 was too expensive. So you wanted something that wasn't obscenely expensive and you picked the middle one, right? But if there was a bottle that was $40 next to sitting, sitting next to the $35 bottle of wine, you might've gone for the $40 one. So those types of things, internal, external, environmental factors can influence your decision-making even if we're not actually aware of it. Okay, interesting. Where do I, I'm like, what? Okay, let's segue into ambiguity aversion. Tell me about that. Sure. So there's there's two concepts. One's called ambiguity aversion. There's also this idea of regret aversion. But ambiguity aversion is this idea that um, we're actually very bad with numbers and statistics, and we tend to overvalue certainty versus uncertainty. So the example I give here is you give somebody two choices. The first choice is there's a 100% chance that they'll get $10 or there's a 90% chance that they'll get $20. So the economic payout of the latter is greater, but a lot of people will take the first options because it's certain, right? So even economically speaking, if the payouts of one is more than the other, just introducing uncertainty into it can skew your decision making. So when you're thinking about this in terms of your future self or switching jobs or moving cities, just even if the potential payout of that is much, much higher, if there's a piece of uncertainty that's integrated into that, we tend to lean towards the certainty. That's really interesting. That actually ties into that expression, the devil you know versus the devil you exactly. don't. Interesting, because exactly. I've done this in my life too, where I've stayed in a bad situation for much longer than I should have because I didn't want to face the uncertainty of getting to a new place and being like, 
Turns out it's just me. Exactly. Exactly. And that also parlays into something called regret aversion, where we tend to uh, regret choices that we did make versus choices that we didn't make. Right. So if you're on a certain path and then you make a decision and it doesn't work out, you're much more likely to regret that rather than if you're on a certain path and you stay on that path and it doesn't work out, you're less likely to regret that. Why? That is a very good question. Um, I, uh, I, I got to dig in more into the research of sort of the psychology going on behind that uh, to, to get that answer. So why does that matter? When people are thinking, let's let's keep it in the context of the future self. Why does that matter? Because I don't I think if you start to understand these paradigms that are going on in these theories is that you're not really thinking rationally is kind of the, the core concept here that um, you're focusing in on specific pieces of information more than other pieces of information, even though statistically speaking that you shouldn't be. Now, tell me if this connects to that whole idea that you just talked about. But what I notice in in friends and in clients is that oftentimes people will not make a decision. And I always say, you're making a decision, right? You're, you're choosing to let a door close, which is, in essence, a decision, but you're not calling it a decision. Is that part of the rationalization? Yeah, this, this idea that, you know, if we don't move forward, we don't limit our opportunities. So the way that I like to think about that is imagine you're in a room, there's six doors, right? And each one of those is an option that you can take. And the concept basically is once you walk through one door, you can't go back and walk through the other doors. And I think that's part of what can keep people paralyzed is I don't want to limit my other opportunities. But in reality, as you know, if you don't walk through any doors, there's no opportunity. That's so fascinating because that's exactly if you do the model of coaching, which is this idea that thoughts create feelings, which create actions or inactions, which create results, which always validate the original thought. It's so fascinating when someone is hanging out in indecision. What's happening is that they're scared. It's usually fear, right? They're scared of making the ultimate decision because they're afraid of how that's going to pan out. So what they do, in your words, exactly, they just stay completely paralyzed and they make no decision. Right. And so nothing happens. Right. Right. They're worried about falling on their face or not making forward progress, but they're creating the conditions to never know whether those things are going to come true or not. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. How else do you see fear working in behavioral economics world? Yeah, I mean, we're driven by fear. I mean, we really, really are. I mean, if you think about this to the beginning of mankind is that we were always doing things to um, minimize the downside because that's how we survived, right? So, I mean, the way that we often make decisions and the way that we view the world is typically driven by fear. We tend to overweight losses, things that are that are framed as, as fearful, much heavier than subsequent gains, even if the payout, economic payout is completely equal of the two. So is that something that you think that we should try to change or do we work with it? I think you want to try to work with it. And there's two ways to work with it is the first way is just to really understand the cognitive biases that are happening, right? So it's one thing to say, I'm scared of doing X, Y, Z. I think it's a whole other thing to say, oh, this is some of the the research in psychology and behavioral economics of why this is happening. Because then you're saying, okay, this isn't just me. This is actually the way that our brains typically work. And then 
figuring out behavioral solutions to help you overcome those, right? So we were talking about the future self before, figuring out what types of mechanisms can you use, knowing that this idea of present bias, that we overweight options that are are, are in the now versus the future, what are some ways that we can overcome that? Um, I think can be really powerful. And it reminds me of this, this study that AARP did. They were trying to get individuals to save for retirement. And one of the things that they do was they had this the software that could basically show you as an older person. Um, and when they did that, people actually opted into retirement savings uh, at a higher rate than previously, right? So that's a perfect example is like, okay, I know that it's it's hard to achieve my future self. I'm present biased. What are some ways to overcome that? Well, I can bring my future self closer to my present self. And that's basically the underlying concept of what it's doing by showing me as this older person. That's so interesting. So I'm going to link to this article because I was reading it this morning. So fascinating about that idea of actually visualizing yourself and being able to connect with your future self because you can see her or him or they. Right. And one other thing from that article that I thought was super interesting is this idea of emphasizing the similarity between your current self and your future self in order to bridge the gap. And so I was thinking about one of the questions that I ask in coaching, which is, to ask somebody to describe their future self, right? Like, what are her characteristics? What is she like? Or what is what are he or they like? And then you say, how are you that person right now? Right. And that's how you continue to bring it back to the right. current moment. Right. You want to try to close that gap between your present self and your future self. And it could also be interesting. This is not something I've tried before. But with a client, for example, when they imagine their future self, how far out typically is that? Or does it just range? Yeah, that's a good question. What I usually do is I say, what is most vivid for you? And which is, I think that was my mechanism for doing the visualization, which I didn't realize until just this moment. But I say, which is easiest for you to connect with three years, five years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And usually people have one that that they can most connect with connect with. Mm -hmm. So I would Yo, how do you visualize yourself and make it very concrete and tangible in 10 years, in five years, in three years, in one year, in six months, in three months, in one month, in one week, right? So you're bringing that future self even closer to you. Um, and there's actually, there's something called the constructal level theory, which basically talks about this concept that we tend to, as things move into the future, we don't view them visually in our minds as concrete. It's abstract. And the more abstract something is, the harder it is for us to wrap our heads around that, right? So it becomes more concrete the closer you can bring that future self to your current self. So I think it's great to visit, to get an idea of where you're going in 10 or 15 years, but also figure out how do you close that gap to make it very concrete and salient in the now. Yeah, yeah. And just to reemphasize that the idea is not just to say, what is she like? What is she doing? What is her life like? You say okay, now what advice does she have for you mm -hmm. now? Exactly. And I love that. And that's something we we're actually thinking about with one of our projects is it was around a similar scenario, not coaching, but um, you think about habit change, commitment devices and making a commitment to somebody else or getting a coach. I think it's one thing to get advice from somebody else, but changing that paradigm and saying, well, what would your future self say to you? That's a very, very powerful paradigm to integrate. In, into into the work that you're doing. So it's really interesting that that you're already doing that. Well, and that makes me think of all the other little tricks that you use in life coaching, which is you use all these little mechanisms. And then I always say to the client at the end, I'm like, you know, that's you, right? You know that you sitting right here came up with all of those ideas. Like right. that's 
you had to go to your future self to get them, but that's you and you have access to that right now. And I always bring it back to that point. Right. And so another another few little tricks that I do in life coaching is – so if somebody's having trouble coming up with an answer and for their own life, like a solution for something that's happening, is often they'll just say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so one of the tricks that we use is, well, what would you say if you did know? And mm. all of a sudden, people have answers that they didn't have. Interesting. And it's one sentence that completely just changes your mindset. Right. Or you say the other thing that I use often is, well, what would you tell your best friend? Right. And I think it's that idea of, again, going to a third person right. gives you some emotional distance to get clarity. I think it really does. And I think, too, when it's interesting because when you're talking, I don't want to say it's criticism, but when you're trying to give somebody advice, whether it's another person or a client, I think it's one thing to say, you should do X, Y, Z. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll say, you know, somebody else I was talking to that was in a very similar situation as you met this challenge by doing XYZ and it sort of removes that that gut reaction you had to say well, like that against their specific ego that makes sense yeah that seems to connect somehow to in my mind to the cohorts which is basically I guess that's the right. heart effect in action isn't it right exactly exactly so I want to segue super quick into your life so how do you form connections. This question comes up a lot in coaching. It's like, how do you form a community that's going to support the identity that you want to have and the person you want to be? Um, what are things that you've done in your life to get that community support around you? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And, you know, who I want to be has definitely changed a lot, especially over the last, I would say, four or five years. When I graduated college, I it's like, I just want to venture back company and raise hundreds of millions of dollars and be on Forbes. And now I don't really, I mean, I don't want that. And uh, I always tell my team members that what I want to do is I want to work with really, really smart people working on very challenging problems. And you'll start to attract the type of people that you want to attract when you're truly passionate about the work that you're doing. Because I think there's a sense and other people can sense it, whether they realize it or not when you're doing something because you really want to be doing it. And that passion, I think, is just attractive. So I've noticed as I've dug more into the behavioral economics, the individuals I've been connecting with, whether online or offline, LinkedIn, et cetera, have a genuine passion for this. And that that creates that type of connection because we're not after this for the fame and the money, et cetera. We're doing it because we all just really enjoy this work and believe it can make a big impact. And that naturally builds a, a healthy community around it. I'm nodding along. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So there's, uh, there's another phrase from life coaching, <laughs> you know, it's kind of my world, um, strategic byproducts. And I think I mentioned it here on the podcast before, but it's basically this idea of all of the side benefits that you get when you commit yourself to a bigger goal. Mm -hmm. And so I think about this all the time when I think about my life coaching certification program. And yes, I have a beautiful life coaching certificate, which is great. You know, it's great for me. It's great for my clients. But I think about all the things I gained on the way to that experience, including a network of friends, a network of coaches, people to bounce ideas off of, self-confidence, um, the ability to really show up for myself. And so it's so cool for me to look at all of those strategic byproducts and community that has come by me going all in. Yeah. 
And I think it's an excellent point and something that I've learned from me around my journey is that I think a lot of times when you do make goals, you get so caught up in, A, what is the goal and what am I going to benefit from it? But you really don't know. And Steve Jobs actually said it beautifully in a commencement speech he gave once is that you can only connect the the dots looking backwards. You can't connect the dots looking forward. And I think about that too in all of my entrepreneur experiences is that there's so much more that I've gained from it outside of what I was set out to do, right? And if you would have asked me when I graduated from college where I would be when I'm 31, I would have never said running a company that uses behavioral economics to help people make better decisions. But because of this weird trajectory and other goals that I have, I've ended up here and I'm very happy that I'm here, but I could have never predicted that from the onset. I mean, that's how I feel about everything that's happened in my life is I'm like, never would have predicted living abroad for multiple years and yet best decision I've ever made. Right. So no, I I love that Steve Jobs quote. Absolutely. Um, So I was thinking actually this morning about, I think a lot about continuing education and how people can really keep that spark for learning alive or if it's not alive, (laughs) revive it, bring it back from the dead. Um, I do this, obviously, through life coaching and this kind of thing, podcasting. I mean, I got to read all these super fascinating articles about behavioral economics this morning. Yay. But I think a lot of people don't have an area that they're really actively learning in. And so I was just thinking this morning how cool it would be to take an entrepreneurship class as an adult at, at like as an audit at GW, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some schools will actually let you sit in on classes for free as an audit. So I think that's an, a, an excellent idea. And it's something that, you know, I, I know that I can learn new things on my own, but also sometimes it just takes me being physically in a classroom. And I took a, about a year or so ago, a part-time class with General Assembly, which is kind of like a trade school, a machine learning class for three months. And it it's something that I needed somewhat for work, but a lot of it was just an interest in mine. And it was it was awesome. I got to go twice a week for three hours and sit in a room with a bunch of really smart people and learn something new. And it was a very rewarding experience. And all things considered, is pretty inexpensive, too. Mm-hmm. I'm taking an Italian class right now. And it's I think about this a lot just from the learning perspective. And I think about language learning as a really good way to practice life skills. And so <laughs> this is a stretch, but I always take, I'm like, what, why am I so confident about my language learning? And I'm like, well, one, I know it, I know the process works. I know that if I commit time and energy to it, I will get better. And then I say, how can I bring that to the rest of my life? Right. How can I bring that to my health and wellness? How can I bring that to nutrition or my business? Right. And so that it's in language learning, it's really easy for me to see that connection. Right. And I think that's really important is as you think through that is we have mental models that we've built of how we view the world and how we operate. And when you figure out a model that works well for you, you can begin to apply that to your other areas of life, right? So if you can tackle a challenge in an area of your life that might seem unrelated to a goal, but if you create a model around that that works for you, just like you said with language learning, I think it can be really powerful for helping you tackle other challenges that may arise. I love it. You just summarized like four of my blog posts in one. So um, I, I think about this a lot. I always think about what are the beliefs that you have that you love? Yeah. And breaking down one beliefs that you love and then also breaking down successes. So I always say that it's super helpful to break down successes as much as it is as it is to break down losses. Because when you can understand why you've been successful – then you can replicate that. Right, exactly. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things is when you are successful and you have no idea why. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. Um, And I think that's why people always say to learn more from their failures, from their successes. But part of the reason is because with your failures, you're forced 
to figure out what went wrong. When you have a success, why would you look twice at it? It worked out, even if it was for the wrong reasons. Okay. So how do you do this? How do you implement? I call them postmortems. I think I got that from my last company. But how do you implement a practice of breaking down your successes in your own life? I would do it very similar to the way that you do postmortems for failures, right? Really dissect what actually went on, what contributed to this success, what could have gone wrong, and try to draw correlations between your actions and what actually drove those outcomes. I always use the analogy of the sales world, where if you have a good coaching culture, then you're going to be breaking down the deals that you've lost and the deals that you've won, Mm -hmm. just in a very regular, like weekly or monthly meeting. Exactly, exactly. Hey, just a quick interruption to let you know about a free resource that's available to you. I absolutely love the quote that knowledge is in the answer and wisdom is in the next question. And I think that one of the single most valuable things that a coach can offer is insightful questions. So in that vein, I'm giving you the power of a life coach in a workbook. If you go to peakcoaching.co, that's P-I-Q-U-E, slash workbook, you can find all the best prompts that I use with myself and with my clients to really get fruitful answers that can actually change your life. I know that's a big claim, but head to peakcoaching.co slash workbook, download the workbook, and really dive into some of these transformative questions. Report back to me on how it goes. I would love to hear. Now, back to the episode. So I'm really curious what I ha- this is just an off-the-cuff question. Sure. Um, what is a belief that you have that you love? That is a great question. So I could pivot to the behavioral economics, but we've talked so much about that. I'm going to go <laughs> a different direction. Okay. I don't think you can be truly successful at something unless you're genuinely passionate about it. I just think that there is a mental block that happens when you're doing something for the wrong reasons. And it might not show itself at first, but over time, eventually it will. If you want to be the best at something, you have to find something that you're genuinely interested in. And when I say passion, I don't mean, I used to think that passion meant, and not that you shouldn't do this, right? Some sort of working towards some social cause or some nonprofit. I think a lot of people sometimes feel lost about what they're doing in life or work. And they, they automatically think, I need to go work at a nonprofit helping people. And you should do that. Like, don't get me wrong, but when you think about passion, it's it's more so internal. Like, what is something that I just really enjoy doing? And I think one of the greatest gifts is being able to find something that you're genuinely good at and figuring out a way to give that back to the world. Um in a not evil way, of course. <laughs> no evil. Do no evil is not right, Google's right. motto. That makes me think of two different theories or terms that I think really work well together. So I don't know if you've heard of Ikigai. I don't think so, no. So it's spelled, I'll put it in the show notes, I-K-I-G-A-I. And then there's another corresponding theory, which is the zone of genius. Have you heard of that? I've heard of the zone of genius and I've read, there's a book. Big Leap. Yes, yeah. Big Leap. Such a good, it's my, one of my top recommendations. One of my coaches gave that to me. Yes, Love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> good coach. It wasn't me. Um. So Ikigai is basically this idea of finding the overlap between what you're good at, what the world needs, what the world will pay for, and um, and what you love to do. Right. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Are I you at it, your Ikigai? I am at my Ikigai. Ikigai, I think. And I'm still working towards it. 
And I'll tell you, I've had my company now for about six years and it took me the first three or four years. I was more so kind of, I thought I was there, but I wasn't. And it wasn't until recently. And it takes time. It just takes trial and error and figuring out what you like, you don't like. And eventually, if you kind of keep hacking away at it, and I'm not just saying starting a company, but just working towards something that you're passionate about, eventually you'll you'll get there. And then it becomes self-reinforcing, right? You find something you're good at, you find success, you want to work harder at it. The harder you work, the more success you find, the more passionate you become. And then it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. I like everything's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you might as well have a good self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. That's if I have one lesson from coaching, I mean, it's that every single thing that you think, feel, do in your life is always a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let's hack that for our good. Exactly. So I think you, you made me think something really interesting, which is this idea of you thought you were at that place, that overlap between, you know, what you're great at, what you want to do, all that. But you weren't. And I think what happens sometimes is that people put self-imposed limits on themselves. And I hear this a lot from people. They say like, well, not just everyone can have followed their passion. Not just everyone can run their dream job. Um, And I always say, yeah, but what about you? Like, let's not talk about everyone. Let's talk about you. How do you stop from settling? Always creating new goals to achieve for, I think, is a big one. And understanding that the... The, re- the reward is in the journey, not the end goal. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And and that's I think that's one of the things that also counters that burnout, right? If you're actually doing something because you're genuinely interested in, and actually like doing it versus you're trying to achieve some higher goal. I also have noticed for me with my journey, a big sign that I am on the wrong path or I'm not doing something that I'm genuinely interested in is chasing vanity metrics. Oh, which is big. So trying to get written up in Forbes and trying to get other people to look at me and say, oh, he's so smart, right? Because that does make you feel better, but for a very short period of time. But that's usually a signal to myself that something else is going on here that I need to look at. That's a lot of self-awareness. Yeah. It took me a while to get there, but yeah. (laughs) But hey, here we are. That's really interesting. I think um, in in my line of work, Instagram, uh, my big thing is my email list numbers. Yeah. Podcast downloads. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Is those times when I'm obsessing over those are the times when I'm most disconnected from actually just showing up and doing right. amazing work. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and and not that you shouldn't strive for those or want those. I mean, you should. And it's sort of built into our nature to get that type of social feedback. But if that's the only thing that you're 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 going by, that that can be very dangerous. Yeah. What was, was there just a moment of epiphany that that happened? It was after a few times, right? So I would get written up in an article or have something that was great. And then it was the, the reward from that was soon gone. And then I was just back to where I was and it was not sustainable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think you make a really interesting point about it being the journey and not the destination, which sounds so cliche. And yet I'm like, that is the root of. I think self-development. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I always say that life coaching is really flipping it on its head. So in normal life, we're taught if I get this result, then I can feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. And life coaching is really about flipping that. And so saying, if I feel a certain way, then I can get this certain exactly. result. Exactly. And it's interesting because there's a lot of work done. Have you heard of Dan Gilbert? Maybe. I don't He does a lot of work know. around just happiness in general. And okay. we're hedonic creatures and we tend to adapt 
to our new norm rather quickly. So whether we experience something really, really great or something really, really horrible. And in one of his talks, he gave the example of somebody winning the lottery versus somebody that was in an accident and was paralyzed. And for the most part, they return back to their baseline levels of happiness within a year. So I think that's one of the reasons is that when you do strive to achieve something just for the goal in and of itself, why it can be so quickly fleeting. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Absolutely. So actually, this is another surprise question for you. Taking it back a little bit to behavioral economics, what if you could teach everyone in the world one theory or one term that you think would change their life, what would it be? Stumping you. There's so many. I'm (laughs) trying to think of a a specific one. Ugh. This is really tough. I, I'll let you have two if you need okay, to. Okay. So the first it's one. Generous of me. <laughs> and this, this, this is with a much bigger umbrella, but I would say present bias, but basically talks about our tendency to just value the present much more than the future because that kind of parlays into a number of different theories and ideas. And then the last one is paradox of choice. Okay. I love paradox of choice. I want to get into that. Let's pause real quick here at present bias. We've talked about this in the context of the future self exercise, but why is that so important for people to know? Because you're irrationally overweighting your present versus your future, right? So you're trying to meet your future self. You're trying to achieve goals that are in the future. So you're giving more weight to things that are happening now and that can cloud your, your judgment for who you want to be in the long term. What are some examples in the areas that we've talked about of ways that people cloud? So the benefits that pay off in the long term, you tend to discount those. So this is one of the reasons that it's very hard to save for retirement is there's something called hyperbolic discounting. And basically what it talks about is that we discount future options. So $20 in my mind today does not feel the same as $20 a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, accounting for inflation, if you will, it is the same amount of money, right? So those choices that are happening in the future, we're discounting those gains and those losses. And that's not a rational way to look at those. What does that mean in layman's terms? Bring it back down to earth for us. <laughs> yeah. So we we tend to just give less weight that the impact that we feel from that because it's so far in the future just does not feel real and tangible to us. And if it doesn't feel real and tangible, we don't take that really into account in our decision making today. I was thinking of a few other examples as well. So I would imagine that this falls under the same umbrella is eating a bunch of junk food now. Right. So you're like, well, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Right. And that's part of the, because the the payoff for eating, for not eating junk food, I should say, is very far in the future, right? So that's hyperbolic discounting. There's also, you don't really actually know the payoff. You can still get sick from something else. So ambiguity effect, right? The certainty bias. You don't know for sure it's not going to pay off, right? Or will pay off, I should say. And that goes back to our present bias. We want... And everyone's saying now with Amazon, we want everything right now. We've always wanted everything right now, (laughs) right? We want the reward right now. We take an action. We want to see the result right now. And the farther that that result is moved into the future, the harder it is for us to take that action, which is why you see these commitment devices and goals. Because basically what goals are doing is they're trying to change long-term behavior 
and they're trying to close the gap that exists between the reward that I get for taking an action and the long-term benefit that I see for it. I'm trying to think of some other examples that I've experienced in my own life. Um, I think, well, meditation is probably a huge one, Mm -hmm. right? It's like giving up the five, 10 minutes today feels like a nuisance. Right. And you're not thinking of all the years of peace to come. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. So then you said, so present bias, and then the other one was paradox of choice. Yes. Let's dive in. Yes. The paradox (laughs) of choice is the concept that basically when we're giving too many choices, we tend to get paralyzed, choice overload. Uh, We can only process so much information at once. This was originally brought to light by a a gentleman named Barry Schwartz. There was a study that he did with a bunch of jams at a grocery store. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but at first he put out, I think it was 24 different types of jams. 30% of people stopped to look, only 3% purchased. And then he narrowed it down to only six types of jams. Not as many people stopped, but the purchase rate went up astronomically. Right. So when you're giving people choices, if you give them too many choices, they get paralyzed and can't make a choice. Um, this also goes to the way that we just process information. We tend to categorize and bucket information, chunk information. We have an easier time remembering data and information if it's chunked. Perfect example of this is your phone number. It's not phone numbers are ten, nine, ten digits. Ten. <laughs> it's not just 10 digits. Uh-huh. Right. They're chunked in three, three and four. Right. We have a hard time remembering pieces of information that extend beyond five items of information, right? So that's why when you see things that are chunked, typically the maximum number of options or chunks are typically about five. Okay. Okay. So the jam example. So I think one of the risks of having too many choices is the you get paralyzed. But what I've also heard, and I would love for you to dig in a little bit more, is that you're less satisfied with your choice based on how many options you had. Yeah, so Barry Schwartz actually talks about this too, and also Dan Gilbert. Back to the, the the some of his work is that it goes back to regret aversion too, right? So, oh, there was a great study he did, and it was talking about they let students, I think, it was pick a photo or a painting, and they could take it home with them. And one scenario was they had no option to give it back or return it for a different one. The other study, the same study, the other treatment was they did give them the option to to give it back or trade it in, but they asked them how satisfied they were with what they got. And the ones who couldn't give it back reported a higher level of satisfaction. But yes, when you do something, but there's another option that seems like it was better or another couple of options, you tend to regret the choice that you made knowing that you could have done something else. I always think of the Cheesecake Factory and I think of the menu and I'm yeah. like, how would you be satisfied? There's so many options. Exactly. You're always going to be thinking about the other exactly. cheesecake. <laughs> exactly. So. so, okay. So this makes sense, right? When you think about it from a community-wide lens. Right. Can you take it down for us to how does an individual stay aware of this and hack this for their own life? So number one, I would limit your choices to begin with. So if you're trying to figure out what you want to do next, don't give yourself 10 options, give yourself three options. And when you decide to do something, I think you just you want to move forward with it with intention and focus and not worry about what else you could have done. And one way to keep that focus is back to that analogy that I gave before is you can only connect the dots 
looking backward, not forward, is you don't really know where this is going to lead or what other doors it's going to open up. That's very life coaching where you say, I'm making a decision and I'm going all in on it and I'm going to decide that it was the right decision. Right, right, exactly. And this is more of a business concept in building web apps and development is this idea of sprints. So basically you take very large tasks or projects and you break them up into very small sprints. So you, the idea is that you break it up into really small sprints, but for that sprint, all you're doing is focusing on that one task at hand and you don't worry about anything else until you're done that and then you reassess. And it's been helpful for my business too, especially small companies or even in your personal life. If you want to do, I want to work out more, I want to read more, I want to do all these things, New Year's rolls around, like resolutions, 95 different things you want to do, maybe for just one month, all you do is work out an hour a day and just do that for one month. Forget about the other. And I don't know if this goes against some of your advice, so I don't want to derail it. But the idea is like for just one month, concentrate on doing something really, really well. And then after that month is over, then reflect on how far did you get? What else could you be doing, etc. I don't think it goes against life coaching at all. But what I think is actually super interesting is that I noticed that if you are constrained in business or in life, if you put your focus onto that one constraint and you execute on that, the other stuff actually starts happening. It's like a snowball effect that it starts happening in the background, Right. which I, I don't know if you would agree, but I'm like, if your goal is to work out and that naturally makes you eat healthier, then sure, eat healthier. Right. And it's funny you say that because, so for example, it was about a year or so ago, I was working with one of my coaches and I wanted to be more productive, Right. And one of the things I started doing was I started getting up in the morning and working out before work. And then all of a sudden, I became more productive. And it wasn't that productivity is something that I wanted to fix. And but working out in the morning, like you said, is a snowball effect that just snowballed into be becoming more productive. That's my thing is when I do morning pages, I so I write three pages in the morning and I do it without my phone. I'm like, all of a sudden, I've accomplished focus. I haven't been on my phone. Right. I have written, so I've gotten all my ideas out. I have new ideas. And and then I basically kind of coach myself into getting ready for my day. And I'm like, 100% has an effect through the rest of my day, right? Mm-hmm. I'm so focused. I'm so concentrated. I'm uplifted. <laughs> I'm lighter. Right. Ugh, it's the right. best. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like that idea of focusing on one and allowing the other ones to fall into place. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So I always ask for book recommendations. And so you sent me a few recommendations, but is there one book that you think is the most beneficial book that people can read if they really want to understand behavioral economics? So the golden book, at least right now, is Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. So, And then there's a lot of books by Dan Ariely. He's one of the more prominent behavioral economists who's really taking a lot of these ideas and theories out of the academic literature and actually implementing them. He has a number of really, really good books. Nudge is probably the number one. And then Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, which was the foundation for a lot of this thinking, prospect theory, et cetera are probably the, I would say the two books if you want to get started in this. I have a number of other books outside of that, but I would say those are probably the two. Okay. So I try to read Thinking Fast and Slow. It's dense. 
Oh my gosh. So I love, I mean, I love the concepts and, yes. we, and I was reading it because we were using a lot of the concepts in my corporate setting doing sales work. Uh-huh. Could not get through it. So can you just give us a summary? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it basically talks about system one and system two thinking. So this is actually, I think something that's really interesting to cover because it's sort of the foundation of behavioral economics and the way that our brains process information. So the basic thesis and concept of the book is that our brain typically operates in one of two modes. So system one is the automatic, walking down the street. It's the types of things that you do without even thinking twice about it. System two is reflective. It is used for a lot of our high-level strategic thinking, decision-making, et cetera. Basic concept is that over time, we move a lot of our system two thinking into system one. They become habit loops because if we had to think about every single decision that we made every single day, we couldn't function. But because of this, we've created mental shortcuts to help us figure out how we need to operate in the world. But those can be flawed. So it pulls up a lot of the reasons that that way of thinking is flawed, which is all the behavioral economic theories that sort of lie under system one thinking. And then it goes into the overarching idea of prospect theory, which is a framework for the way that we make decisions. A lot of things that I talked about today fall into thinking fast and slow. So you don't need to read the entire book. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, it is very it is very dense. But that's, that's part of the reason that we're doing the work that we're doing is yeah. that one of our goals is how do we take a lot of this academic research and literature, because it's out there. There is a ton of information in regards to behavior change. Pull it out of academia, make it accessible to you and I in a way that's really easy to understand, and then implement it into the decisions that we're actually making every single day. Because if somebody does some phenomenal research and it sits on a shelf of some institution, how, how good is it if it's not actually being used to, to help us lead better lives? Yeah. Yeah, you're saving the the environment world right, one right, behavioral economics theory right. at a time. Um, but I, it's actually, I'll obviously keep tying this back to coaching, but it's interesting to me because I think that that is also at the crux of coaching is taking the things that have become a habit loop and become automatic that you think are just you. You're like, oh, I just am this way. And building awareness around those things, bringing them out of the automated process back into the light, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that you can change them. And then what you do is once you have the desired habit, you put that back into the automated. Right. Exactly. And make it automatic. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like resurfacing things. I, I always think of this in terms of dark and light. I'm like, you're resurfacing it from the dark, bringing it to the light, and then you're just pushing it back right. into the dark. <laughs> exactly. And I have to imagine a lot of it probably relates to the cognitive behavioral therapy models of thoughts, feelings, actions, and a lot of the thinking with regards to a lot of the things that we do is so automatic that oftentimes we don't even realize the thoughts that we have that drive the feelings and then we just take action. So starting to unravel those and getting people to become aware of those first is a is a crucial step. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's back to your point about 95% of these things happening below the surface. Exactly. So yeah, we're just constantly building awareness. And I think it's actually really interesting to watch within coaching is that Often just building awareness around why a client has the result that they currently have is enough for them. It's kind of enough of a wake-up call for them to take action, even if you don't make specific exactly. steps. Exactly. Exactly. Just yeah, exactly. Just that awareness level I think is is huge. And it can be a really big first step because you're these these ways of thinking and operating are so ingrained to us that yeah, we don't even realize what's driving it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any book recommendations outside of behavioral economics that have really changed your life? So, um, yes. 
there is a book called Sapiens Ugh. by Yuval Harari, Ugh. and it's fascinating. And, I have it on my Audible. Oh my God. It is, <laughs> it's just, he puts everything, it's very accessible. So it's, it's a dense book, but it's not dense to the point where I have no idea what's going on. And he puts it in terms of basically how mankind, humankind, womankind got to where they are today, tracing it all the way back through the agricultural revolution, the cognitive revolution, the industrial revolution, and now the technolog technological revolution. He all also has another book that just came out called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, Where Are Things Going, is fascinating. There is a book called Behave, which is by Robert Sapolsky. It's all about neuroscience and the underlying mechanisms of the way that we operate. It's very, very dense, but it's a great book. Those are probably two of my best book recommendations. And then there's also another book that just came out. It's called Indistractable by Nira Eyal. And it talks all about this, what technology has done to our lives and how we use it as a crutch and figuring out what are what's actually going on that is causing this and beginning to unwind those habit loops. I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast at some point, and I would love to dive in deeper into this idea of one of the questions which I didn't get to is how do you personally make peace with being in technology and also understanding that technology can have a lot of detrimental effects. So, yes, yeah. we can definitely dig <laughs> deep, deep into that. I have a lot yeah. of thoughts. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting time to be talking about this because I think we're starting to really see the implications of that within the last two to five years. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all these different kind of art projects, all these different kinds of representations. Like, I don't know if you've seen the there's photography with it's couples in bed or around around in their communities and it's the cell phone is replaced. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? I have. Okay. So it's, I did not explain that well, but basically just like it's a couple like lying in bed back to back and they just take the phone out of the, the photograph to show you how crazy it is, how right. disconnected we are. Yeah. So yeah, there's lots to unpack here. I think one of the things too is to remember, and this is sort of what Neil was saying in his book is that, you know, when newspapers came out, when the television came out, this same sort of worrying concept was definitely relevant, right? So the first question I think is unpacking is how much is it actually the technology or how much is that just a symptom of other things that are going on in the world? And then technology being used for good, I think with, with any powerful, any powerful idea or concept, any of those can be used for, for good or evil. And I think peeling back in the ways that we want to to use those for good. I think that's a really good point that it's not just universally bad, right? And it's right. not just universally distracting. And I really love your point that it there's it's a symptom of a deeper problem. And I always think about food, right? Being a similar example, right? Is like you could use food to bring people together and connect right. and have amazing conversations over dinner, or you can use it to right to overeat and hide right. your feelings. Exactly. I think that's a that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could keep going on and on, sure. <laughs> but any closing thoughts that you want people to take away about all the stuff that we've talked about today? Yeah. So I think that, well, first of all, they should reach out to you, of course, and have at least an introductory conversation. I think that when I started, before I worked with a coach, I was like, why would I need to work with a coach? Right. I didn't even ask him to say all this, but go ahead. Okay. I'm here for um, it. <laughs> And if you actually, so there's there's two big takeaways here. I think the first thing is, number one, is that the best performing athletes, executives, et cetera, in the world 
they all have coaches. Tom Brady is, and for anyone that's a Patriots fan out there, is the best quarterback to ever play the game. And he has God knows how many coaches. Because number one is they're somebody to hold you accountable, but they're somebody that can see your blind spots that you can't see. And that's very dangerous as a person is it's one thing to know what you don't know. It's a whole other thing to not know what you don't know. Because how can you know what you don't know, right? So there's somebody to lift that up. And the second thing is your limitations, and this sounds a little cliche, but they are all mental, right? And it's not until you've gone through the exercise and begun to figure out how to remove those that you realize how much of it was were mental blocks. And that's one of the big things that a coach helps you do is start to recognize those and then figure out how to remove those so you can get to that next level. So well said. Thank I you. didn't ask you to say that, but I i mean, that's exactly what coaching is about. I think you just tapped, you, you mentioned all the important things that I always mention, which is showing your blind spots. Yes, it's, it's not totally socially acceptable at this point, but I'm like, it will be. Right. Having a coach, having a life coach is totally going to be mainstream very soon if I have anything to do with it. And you're absolutely right. Just surfacing those, those mental blocks, because I think we talked a lot about fear and how it's driving people. And I think when you have that outside perspective to show you all the ways that you're self-sabotaging and self-limiting, it can be game-changing. Exactly. Exactly. And then you're just happier because you're just doing the things you want to be doing. And that's, that's ultimately where everyone wants to be. Like at the end of the day, you want to wake up in the morning and you want to be excited to work on whatever it is you're working on. And if you can get to that point, and if it means working with a coach and investing time and money to get to that point, I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to do. And I think that a lot of people aren't able to do that right now. Yeah. And you think about all the money and time you spend on God knows what with not nearly the best payout. It makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for pitching my of course. <laughs> <laughs> my services to my listeners. This is amazing. Um, I'm going to leave so many resources in the show notes. Obviously, Nate has mentioned a ton of fascinating ones. So if you have this as an area of interest, dive in there. I know I'll be for sure following your email newsletter. Awesome. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. So thank you for joining today. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Your support helps this podcast grow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is so much appreciated and I will see you on the next episode.